There have been births at our house this week, but not to Kathy. To uh, an originally named cat called Caddy. Caddy is not exactly our cat, but she is our de facto cat because we feed her, and that's the arrangement. She chews a hole through our screen porch, comes in at will, we feed her, and then she leaves. And then apparently on Friday, she shows up with three kittens. She apparently gets around. I don't know her habits or her family lineage. I don't know who she spends her time with when she leaves the porch that she has destroyed. But when these cats came, the boys, as you might imagine, were very overjoyed, as was Kathy. They're very cute. And these first three cats, I believe, were named Fred and Pokey and Frady Cat. Well, then the next day, though, after the initial excitement, there came number four, who got the appropriate name of Uh (laughs) Uh-Oh. But then the next day, or a little bit later that day, we learned that there were quintuplets. Well, they don't all look alike, but you know. It was a five-cat litter, and so the fifth cat had the name Ander. You've got to be kidding me. (laughs) So, this has caused a lot of excitement in our house. And yesterday, as the neighbor children and mine were spending an uncanny amount of time in utter sedation and silence, mesmerized by these cats, entranced by them, I said to Kathy, I'm so glad they're showing tenderness to living things. And Ander runs in the house. He says, Mom! 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 Fred is a girl. <laughs> and it was true. And later we saw boys holding up. See, up to this point in our animal naming career, the boys demonstrating that adage that we see others not as they are, but as we are, tend to assume, like I do, that all animals are boys. And that assumption generally holds until they give us some kind of contrary evidence, such as giving birth. But in this instance, Fred, he's new. He didn't give birth. They figured out another way of opening their eyes to a reality that was not formally apparent to them. They knew how to inspect and figure out gender besides waiting to see if they could reproduce. And I think it's a nice segue into considering Jesus' words to his disciples as he sits, weary, fatigued, but energized by this realization of having a vision for God's harvest as he talks to this woman who herself has gotten around, who's had five husbands, or the one she lives with presently is not her husband, who has revealed this woman to herself. And she's astonished. And is coming to believe that he is the Messiah. And she runs down the hill... 
to her townspeople as his disciples are coming up the hill to give this hungry man a Baconator. And as they offer him his food, they say, don't you want to eat? And as Jesus is often wont to do, he speaks in these codes where they never understand what he's talking about. And we don't either. And he says, my food, my food is different than that. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. I have a source of nourishment, sustenance, inner flourishing that comes because my meat and drink is doing what God wants and he's just realized something, so it would seem. And so he says, open your eyes. Don't just look on the surface of things. Open your eyes and look. He says the fields are ripe with harvest. In other translations, white with harvest. And it's ponderable that it may just be the case, not only is he looking at maybe cornfields and they're ready to be harvested, and he's saying, by making an analogy, there's a harvest coming, a time for sower and reaper to be glad together, but it's also quite possible, says one commentator who sat at that in a similar spot and looked off in a distance and saw people walking in what would have been traditional Middle Eastern garb and white sort of robes, these townspeople coming up the hill to him, these Samaritans, these half-breeds, these people who are not religious insiders or even religious possibles to the Jews. And Jesus has said, look, God's bounds, the enormity of his heart have expanded to include even adulterous Samaritan women, even adulterous Samaritan people. And he looks at his disciples and he says, look, as these people are coming up the hill and they're white, the fields are white with harvest. Look at this harvest that's coming. Look at these people who are coming. And perhaps you've had times in your life where you've been so excited about something, you didn't need to eat. You forgot about eating because the joy of the thing propelled you. And Jesus here is being propelled by a vision bigger than a burger. He's being propelled by this possibility of God's program of reconciling people to Himself has extended beyond Israel, who were His first priority, and even to the nations that they despise. Open your eyes, He tells them. And it's a good call for us today as we consider our aspirations. For the third week in a row, we are looking at what our aspirations are as a worshiping community, as a one-anothering community, and as a community now in this third week that's been sent out into the world. Much like we say at the end of each service, now go in peace to love and to serve the risen Lord Jesus Christ. We have been tasked. We've been tasked and equipped. God has taken up residence in us and put a message and abilities and power in us that we might go out and be His in the world. And it's instructive for us to consider this notion of opening our eyes to see the harvest all around us, see the disciples are having to be told, open your eyes because they went down into the town and they got food. This woman went down to the town and she got men. 
and women and children. This man saw through me. This man knew me. This man ain't just a man. He's offered life to me. This might be the one that we've been expecting. Come see yourselves. And he tells his disciples, open your eyes. Open your eyes to God's joy. Open your eyes to what God's up to in the world. Open your eyes to the things that excite God. And this is a very important thing for us to hear because we get confused. The disciples get confused. You know, Jesus, in one place, when the disciples come back to Him, He sent out these teams of two, and they get to do all these Holy Spirit tricks, and they cast out demons, and they heal people, and they're coming... They come back and they are jacked up. They've had 47 Red Bulls of spiritual experience. They're like, holy cow, Jesus, you wouldn't believe all this that we've been able to do. It's so cool, we just say something, demons come out and people get healed and legs grow back. And he says, hey, giving you a little insight in the way God thinks about stuff. Don't get excited that you can pull off cool Holy Spirit tricks. Get excited. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Be happy that you get to be part of God's new world when it comes about. You're an inheritor of the world that is to come. Let that be the thing that gets you happy. And then Jesus, when He's always telling these stories, stories depicting the reality that we hear in the story of Zacchaeus, that He came to save the seek and to save what was lost. And these stories about finding lost things. A woman who lost her coins and she's searching all over the house and she finds one and she's so excited about finding one little coin, she calls a party. Or about the shepherd who had 100 sheep. And one of them, one of them wanders off in the basis of that favorite line of my perverse and foolish, oft I strayed, but yet in love He sought me and on His shoulder gently laid home rejoicing He brought me. Jesus tells these stories to say, you know what? In heaven, in heaven that's it, it's being simulcasted right now. You just can't see it. It's going on at the same time as us right now. You just can't see it. When one, one, one person lays down their arms, puts down their extended middle finger to God, quits their indifference to God and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. There's exuberance in heaven. There's excitement in heaven because God knows that life is short and eternity is long and He has come, Jesus has come to save the world, to offer eternal life. He says to His Father, you have given me authority to give eternal life to those to whom you've given me. Jesus wants us to open our eyes to the things that excite God and the most exciting thing to God is the rescue of His image. Remember we talked about last week, He could not bear to see our ruin. So He ruined His Son. So that we would not be. And so Jesus says, open your eyes. Look what God is up to in the world. And as we think about that for a church, as a church, I want to give you two big points to consider. I get these from Charles, not Charles Barkley, William Barkley. Charles Barkley does not help me do anything but laugh. But he says this, that the Christian life is based on twin pillars of discovery 
and communication. Discovery and communication. I think that's a nice way to say it. It's a very nice way to say it because, first of all, one of our basic premises here is that something has been revealed to us. Christians are often accused of being arrogant, of saying, oh, you say Jesus is the only way. How can you be so sure? How are you so arrogant to think you're that? And we're not arrogant. It's the height of arrogance when you say we don't believe God's revelation to us. Things that we believe have been revealed to us. We have discovered them. A mystery, the Apostle Paul says, has been revealed to us, opened up, the curtain's been drawn back, and God said, this is who I am. This is the way to know me. This is what's important in the world. And we just happen to be the people who had it revealed to us, and we said, ah, and something clicked. It resonated. It sounded like a chord of truth that we could grab onto. And so Jesus here makes a discovery, so it would seem that God is opening up his program to the Samaritans, just like Peter in the book of Acts has this amazing vision of God extending his benevolence to all the nations. Don't call anyone, Peter, unclean that I've said is clean. This Samaritan woman has discovered something, and upon discovering that this is the Messiah, and he hasn't booted her to the curb, she runs off to tell her friends. When the garrison demoniac, this man who had been chained, living in isolation, out of his right mind, comes into contact with Jesus and he has liberated from his craziness. He says, please, oh please, oh please, can I come with you, Master, when Jesus is about to leave? You don't often see people saying, can I please follow you? And Jesus says, no way, man. You don't often see people saying, Jesus saying to people, you can't follow me. Instead, he says to this man who's made an amazing discovery, go back and tell your family and everyone how much mercy the Lord has shown to you. See, discovery is really powerful. Now, some of you here get nervous, if you're like me, when there's a sermon about harvests. You have flashbacks to being on a beach and some campus crusade contest. And you're told everybody in that, on that beach is they're going to go in a sinkhole if you don't give them the four spiritual laws. If you don't come back with five notches on your belt, you might go in the sinkhole. And you hear these things and you're nervous. And some of us, well, we get nervous because we don't know what to say. If I'm telling somebody about Jesus, I know I ought to, but I don't know what to say. And you've got a back problem, like me. You've got a big yellow streak up the middle of it. You don't want people to think you're dumb. You don't want people to think you're intellectual. You don't want people to think that you're out of accord with the, the generous spirit of the age. You don't want to be ridiculed for believing something that's so odious to people. Well, let's just say you don't know what to say. But, you've, but you feel like God has tasked us to embody Him in the world with our words and our deeds. We have, we have a message to share, and you don't know what to say. Let me encourage you here. Think about this idea of discovery. 
Because it might be indicative if you're not telling anybody about Jesus, if you're not telling anybody, if you're not holding out any enticing thing about God to someone else in your world, it is entirely possible that Jesus holds no present value to you. So if you start to think about this whole idea of discovery, and you start to think, what would my life be like? What would my life be like? Would I actually be able to honestly look at my own sin if I did not fully and excitedly believe that God had looked at my sin first and decided He would not turn His face away? What would I do? How would I move forward in the face of fear without being debilitated by it? How would I do things that scare me without being paralyzed if not for the reality of Jesus in my life? Without being able to count on Him? How would I be willing to give up stuff now that I might not get back? How would I be willing to serve somebody that might cost me and they might not love me back? I might not get a reward for it unless all of this business about the gift of eternal life and about Jesus somehow one day looking at me and saying, "Ah, welcome, well done. How would I do that if I didn't believe in those things? And you see, all of you in here, if Jesus has some present value in your life, you got something to say. And if He doesn't, you got something to pray. You got something to pursue about. You got to seek God and figure out why why is there no discovery here? Why is there nothing wonderful about him that I can share with other people? You know, John Piper says we always commend what we cherish. It's unbelievable how many articles you can find online about cool new apps for the iPhone. People love iPhones. People love Apple. The most successful company in the history of the universe. Because everything that people love, they love to tell people about. And so we've got to be a people of discovery. That's part of what adoring Christ is about. If you find yourself nervous, you find yourself unwilling, maybe you need to say, Jesus, help me adore you. Help me to see how wonderful it is that I really don't have to be afraid of death because you've died for me. That I will not see death because I believe in you because I'm an inheritor of eternal life and I don't have to earn it. Holy cow, it's so amazing to not live feeling condemned. Holy cow, it's so amazing to know that no matter how often I think I haven't done enough, I haven't given enough, I haven't served enough, I haven't sacrificed enough, that I can say enough of worrying about enough because I do not contemplate myself but my Savior who has done everything that is needful and has given me and has given you should you accept it. Grace. He has made you His workmanship. Now you can go out and work but not to earn anything, to receive and to embody Him. There's got to be discovery. And then there's got to be communication. And this is very important for us to think about when Jesus sends people out to the harvest and He tells His disciples in this formative text as He's leaving them at the end of Matthew and at the end of Luke, He says, Go into all the nations. You know, we call it the great something or another. Right. The great commission. The great commission. 
Go into all the world. Make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them everything I've commanded you, and good luck with that. No, I'm with you. I'm going to embody you. I'm going to empower the enterprise, but you get to carry out my work on the planet. The work of harvesting, of bringing in this crop of people that God wants to save and give eternal life to. But we have been tasked very uniquely with this particular message. It's not our only task. Going into the world is not our only task, as we've been talking about. But it's one of them, and it's a critical one. And it's very important for us. It's been corrective for me to read this book by Kevin DeYoung, who's given me some ideas today. It's very important for me to be reminded that all the other stuff that the church can do, and that I'm hoping we will do very well, taking care of the poor, being active in adoptions, taking care of widows, being about economic development, helping the lonely and the disenfranchised and the dispossessed and the troubled, all of those things that I hope our church will be very active in, that we have been active in, I hope we'll keep growing in our activity about that. Well, the world can do all that stuff too. You realize that? Bill and Melinda Gates do a lot of amazing humanitarian stuff. And so does Oprah. And so does the Red Cross. And so does USAID. There are all kinds of humanitarian organizations that do an amazing job of providing medical care, helping the sick, feeding people. But I mean, we shouldn't try it and shouldn't participate. It's all part of the good that we're called to do. But the unique thing that we have, the thing that we can do that no one else can do, is we have a message that has formed us called the good news of Jesus Christ. We have been given an insight, an opening of our eyes about the nature of things. And we can meet people's deepest and eternal needs. Because more important even, and it's very important, to relieving people's suffering is relieving them from the eternal torment of being eternally separated from God. We have a message that God has taken care of people's rebellion, has punished His Son, and we say, be reconciled to God. This is what we can uniquely do, the church. That no other organization, no other humanitarian organization, no other secular organization can do. We have an unparalleled message. And I think in order to share the message, we have to have some kind of sense. Some kind of sense of how we can overcome the barriers to sharing it. And I'm going to talk about that and then we're going to close up shop here. First of all, one of the barriers I've already spoken of, some of us are just afraid. we got the back problem. Well, we need to be reminded that it is possible to train your fears and to aim your fears. We need to be a people motivated by love but informed by fear. But just not the kind we normally think of. Jesus tells His disciples when they're going out and He says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. He says, don't be afraid of people who can shatter your kneecaps. He doesn't say it exactly like that, but you know what I mean. He says, don't be afraid of people who can catch you with a sniper rifle. Or who can bomb the building where you are. Don't be afraid of people that can hurt your body. 
Because God's got the hair on your head, and that's figurative for a couple of you. God's got the hairs on your head numbered. That's how particular and unique His care is. Nothing can happen to you apart from the will of your Father. So Jesus says, ordinarily in the Bible, it just says, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. You're on God's side. God's on your side. What can man do to me? Don't be afraid. That's the cacophony of anti-fear voices in the Bible. But, God says, be afraid of this. God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, says this. Be afraid of this. Be afraid of Him who can destroy your body and your soul in hell. And there, and Jesus says, in one of four million places, He tries, quite literally, to scare the hell out of people. I wasn't cursing, I'm being literal. He's trying to scare hell out of people. He does it all the time. Like one of them fanged wagon preachers. He obviously believes in this stuff. Do we? He's constantly warning people about this second coming, about judgment that might come, and how to avert God's wrath. Now, whenever we tell people about Jesus, they're always accusing us of being condemning and judging. And sometimes we're regular buttheads. It's true. Forgive the quasi-curse. But sometimes... It's because of this. Jesus did not come to condemn. We're told this. In the chapter before this, Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And whoever does not believe in Him is already condemned. We live around a lot of people who are very condemned. You know how I can tell? Because they're very passionate about things that are inconceivable to me that they would be passionate about. See, the guilty live in dreadful uncertainty. And condemned people, they lash out. They lash out at anything that might expose them. He says it this way, men have preferred darkness to light, so they won't come into the light because they're afraid their deeds will be exposed. All the militant efforts that seem so anti-Christian, I think, are driven deeply by rebellion and a deep sense of condemnation they may not even be aware of. But Jesus is not in the condemnation business. He has tasked us to say there's a way to get out from underneath condemnation. And that's fantastic. And for us, we've got to believe enough. See, this is the second barrier we have, not just fear. But it's unbelief. We just kind of forget sometimes. Or kind of hope sometimes. Maybe this hell stuff ain't real. You know, maybe people won't actually die. Maybe we don't really have to deal with God. Maybe all this preoccupation with sin and judgment and atonement and wrath and all that stuff in the Bible that Jesus talks about more than anybody, maybe that's not really all going to happen. We can sure hope. I'm guilty of that. I functionally believe there are people going to hell and in my... I mean, I actually believe that. But functionally, I live a lot of my life thinking maybe hell won't be populated. I'm not proud of that. It's something I need to repent about over and over again. something I need to keep going back to the Scriptures about to be reminded, oh yeah, God wants to save sinners. It's only good news if you're a sinner. And God says there are going to be people that reject Him. And there are going to be people that will be cut off from Him forever. They're going to be in a place of eternal conscious torment. And we have a way to keep them from that. And we've been tasked with it. 
and we can't hang on to it. And some of our unbelief is that we just don't expect the Jesus who said, if you believe in me, you'll do even greater works than I've been doing. In fact, you'll do, you'll do more because I'm going to the Father and you can ask me. You can ask me to do anything. And so that the Son will bring glory to the Father, I'll do it. Oh, I hope every single person in here after today would have people in their life that they start praying, Jesus, in order to bring glory to the Father, in order to show off the magnanimity, the magnificence, the benevolence of your gigantic, compassionate heart for the world, bring my friends, my co-workers, my children to Christ. Give me opportunity and courage to open my mouth. And let me have the courage to expect that you are the Lord of the harvest. That no man can come to the Father unless you draw them. And that you, your sheep, they always they come when they hear your voice and you might use me as your voice. And then pray that you get love. Because the biggest reason we don't actively participate with Jesus in this harvest stuff is because we don't love people enough to tell them the truth. If we had some sense, if we were discovering richly, that like our professor Steve Brown said, that evangelism is simply one believer telling another, one beggar telling another where he found bread. If you're feasting on God, if you're reveling in the grace that He's given you, you got something to share with people, and it's love to do so. And even if you're not reveling in it, even if it's grown stale to you, listen to what Paul says, I want you to be active in sharing your faith so that you may have an awareness of every good thing you have in Christ. Part of the way to get you out of your staleness is to share it. Share it. You know what's amazing? It comes electric on you. As you're convincing somebody else about the grace that you've experienced but you halfway believe in at the moment, you actually start to believe it might be kind of true. Nothing helps me believe this stuff more than standing up here and preaching it to you each week and trying to tell other people and trying to convince other people of the value of the Savior. Oh, it helps my half-believing, fickle-faithed heart so very much. He comes alive on me. You've got to be moved by love and formed by fear. Rick Warren said this, and this is the last thing. You know Rick Warren... I think he sold two official official numbers, like two gazillion books. And he was at this forum, and he was talking about heaven and hell, the afterlife. He's talking about this reality: there is something worse than death to fear, being separated and cut off from God. That's way worse than death. And. He was talking about his belief about this in a very clear and succinct way as he is wont to do. And a woman stood up in the congregation in the assembly where they were and said, I'm Jewish and I won't accept Jesus as my Savior. Am I going to hell? What would you say? Say, excuse me, there's some kind of problem with the mic. I couldn't hear you. And then you'd run away real fast. He said, every bone in my body wanted to backpedal. Every bone in my body wanted to backpedal. 
But he said, you know what? At the end of the day, I fear God's disapproval more than hers. And so I said this. Well, it seems to me that everybody is betting their life on something. You know, Islam, you're betting on Allah. You're betting on the precepts of that religion. If you're a secularist, you're betting on nothing. And you're betting that you're right. I'm betting my life, he said, that Jesus was not a liar. Because to distrust him, to disbelieve that he's the only way to God, the only way to eternal life is to simply call him a liar. And we have to help people see that's what they're saying. I don't think they're saying that. I'm betting my life that Jesus was not a liar and he said, I am the way. Not a way. Not a commendable way. I'm the way. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And he said, you know, love compels me. That's why I hang out with gays and atheists and crooked politicians. I'm motivated because in the next 365 days, 2.4 million Americans will die and not be with God forever. They'll be eternally cut off from Him. 74 million people in the world in the next year will die and endure eternal suffering. We've been entrusted with the task that says all men have to do, all women have to do, all children have to do is not reject the summons and the love of a God who gave His only Son that they might have life. Don't reject His grace. Receive it. Be changed by it. And know the gift of eternal life. And this is the task that's been given to us. That's why we give, part of why we give our money that we can send this message out for church planting efforts in India and Miami to evangelists in Spain and Kenya and Morocco and other places. This is part of why we give because we have a message that is for the salvation of the world with a, for a God who has a huge heart for the world. He said, I want all of you people to spite yourselves. So be glad. And then join me in sharing the gladness so that people can escape their condemnation and they can escape the wrath that is to come and they can be those who one day receive a warm welcome into the kingdom of my Son whom I love. Well done, good and faithful, thou say. And they'll be there by no doing of their own. If it makes you say hallelujah, share the hallelujahs. If it doesn't, Seek God and figure out why. Let's pray.